This is episode 550 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. The old adage goes something like this, everything the Bible speaks about is true, and the Bible speaks about everything. And this is also true, especially concerning some of the timeless questions we ask ourselves, especially as we get older. What is the purpose of life? Or how can my life have meaning? Both of these questions, and many more just like it, are specifically addressed in the scriptures, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a timeless book written by Solomon, the wisest, at least at one time, and richest man who ever lived. And it was written towards the end of his life when Solomon should have known better than to make the spiritual mistakes he did. It seems as if the wisdom and fervency he had as a young man slowly dissipated as he got older, which often happens to a lot of people, and Solomon failed to finish well. Actually, it's kind of depressing, at least for the first few chapters. But there is so much for us to learn from watching Solomon's sad decline. So join us today as we look at the spiritual decline of a great man of God, Solomon, as he clings to his trinkets and toys more than his relationship with the Lord. And in watching this sad state of events, we can learn how to be different and leave Laodicea behind. All right, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, again, not going to have the uh, PowerPoints behind us, probably as we go through this, because we're going to try something different and try to get us, instead of looking up, looking more down in our Word and uh, write some things. And I, uh, I can't tell you, uh, I've, been, I've been wanting to do this. I've been feeling led to do this for several months, and it's just taken a while to kind of piece it all together. But... As I do when I get ready to study God's Word, I just basically, I don't know, I just, I, I take a deep breath, and I lay my hands on the pages, and sometimes I can just feel the anticipation of what we're about to study. And um, if you have a Bible with pages on it, I would encourage you to do that and just, you know, oh God, this is your Word. This is um, thousands and thousands of years old. It's infallible. It's perfect. It's... It's written for me today, and God actually is going to speak to us through this and change our lives through it. And so I started kind of just going through it as an overview, just not reading at all, but just kind of picking up some high points, maybe some things I had underlined before. You know, the verse I had for you today, chapter 1, verse 2, that we find this repeated over and over again, vanity of vanity, says the preacher strange. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Sounds uh, rather depressing. As a matter of fact, if you'll, um, if you'll kind of, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes at one sitting, you will find that it's one of the few books in the Bible that um, says things in here that are not true. You know, they're accurately recorded, but they're not true. Because what Solomon does is he looks sometimes at life from a human perspective. Everything under the sun. This is how we do it on earth. This is what seems like the right thing to do. This is what I've devoted my life to because as a wealthy you know, earth dweller living up under the sun, this is how we work things out and this is what our culture says. And, and then of course towards the end he begins to realize that that is wrong. That how we do things on earth and how we view things on earth are not the way it's supposed to be. That there's an actual higher power, higher understanding, a higher consciousness, which I've always known, which is God. But like you shared, all of a sudden I got this powerful view of who he is, bigger than I thought before. And so as you're reading, you know, when you're reading Ecclesiastes, it's really difficult just to proof text the passage here and pull some things out because Solomon may be talking about his way of viewing life versus the way God does it. And you have to read it to the end where it's kind of like the book of Job, it all comes together in this crescendo that just uh, points to the amazing love and mercy and attributes of our God. You know, I'm, 
Chapter 1, of course, deals with this vanity of life, whatever that word means. Uh, when I think of vanity, I think of, you know, selfishness and, um, uh, you know, uh, it's all about me kind of thing, but that's not what the word actually means here. I have these headings at the top of my Bible. You probably have some at the top of yours. And, you know, chapter one is the vanity of life, and chapter two is the vanity of pleasure. It's like hedonism with a capital H. It's, you know, I'm here, I have money, I have all these wives and concubines, I can eat anything I want, go anywhere I want, everybody takes care of my needs, it's all about me, um, you know, it's like narcissism 101, and so is that the way life should be? Is life the accumulation of people who serve me. And the more people who serve me, the more money I make, the more influencers I have on social media. Obviously, that's what brings meaning to life. And he comes to the conclusion that that too is vanity. He talks about the wise person and the fool and how it doesn't really matter in this earth and this world who's wise and who's a fool because in the very end, we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then everything we thought meant something in this world, doesn't. And it's because God has ordained in his sovereignty, chapter 3, a season for everything. We, um, when we read Ecclesiastes, we always stop at chapter 3 and go, oh, I recognize this because I read that, listened to that song in the late 60s, early 70s. We look at that and go, oh, I understand that, you know, and the song plays in the back of our head, but we sometimes fail to understand the whole meaning of that, talking about the sovereignty of God and, and that each man, as you're going through this, has been a God-given task. We've all been given a purpose while we're on this earth, and, and if we're not fulfilling God's purpose because we're too busy doing what we want to do, then our life is meaningless. It's vanity. It, it makes no sense at all. Chapter 4 deals about the vanity of selfishness. Uh, uh, chapter 5 is almost like the book of Malachi, where it talks about the importance of having a relationship with God, but taking it seriously by keeping your vows. Don't make a vow that you don't keep. Um, verse number 2, for example, of chapter 5. Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. It's almost like Psalm 115, verse 3. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. What do you mean? Prayer? No, vows. God, if you'll do this, I'll do this, or I swear I'll do this, or I promise I'll do this. And verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay or hold back to pay it, for he has no pleasures in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And then it goes on to talk about, don't let your mouth entrap you in sin. It's a profound chapter when we're just dealing with social media and dealing with the vileness of people out there today. And the latter part of chapter 5 talks about how foolish it is, what vanity it is, to strive to be elevated to some platform, to have gain and honor, because in the great scheme of things, we are all equal in the kingdom of God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And it won't matter what other people thought of us in a secular way. It won't matter how much money we've accumulated or how many awards we've received. What matters is what we have done with him. And this is written by the Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates, the richest person in the world, the wisest person in the world. The one on the Forbes richest person list is you know, eclipsed everybody else. There's a single guy at the top. Everybody wants to be Solomon, and yet this is the struggle he has to try to find meaning and purpose in his life. Chapter 6 talks about the fact that if you, um, if you don't have a purpose in your life, then what's the point of money? But just to accumulate more things, to be able just to drink out of gold goblets instead of silver goblets, be able to drive in a massive car with no purpose in your life, aimlessly just moving around. I mean, what's the purpose of money if it's not to have uh, some sort of overall goal with that? Chapter 7 talks about practical wisdom and and how God is sovereign and all that kind of stuff. Chapter 8 and 9 talk about the fact that good things happen to bad people and how can we work all that out together. Chapter 10 contrasts wisdom and folly. And as you're going through this, Solomon's beginning to understand the 
life he's lived is, is being able, is, is starts to, to peel away to the core, and he's beginning to see that everything he devoted his life to really meant nothing if it wasn't centered on the sovereignty of God. Chapter 11 talks about the importance of diligence, and it's contrasted earlier with laziness. And, and as we bring it to a close in chapter 12, we get to verse number 8, and we see this phrase again. I mean, the word vanities is listed 38 times in this book, but here's this phrase, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Everything I've devoted my life to, everything we strive for, everything that we try to accomplish on this earth really mean nothing if it's devoid of God or some greater grand purpose. So what's your summary, Solomon? Now let's just read 13 and 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter from the richest man who ever lived at that time, the wisest. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, that's a lot for you to say, Solomon, when you look at the time that this book was written. For this is man's all. <laughs> Wait a second. I'm having problems paying my rent and you have money like I can't even imagine, and you're saying that all that means nothing except keeping God, or to fear God and keep his commandments? Why? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whatever good or evil. That seems kind of strange to you now. It won't as we begin to unpack Ecclesiastes, and you can see his process as he's going through making these decisions. It is a, um, it is a profoundly inspired book for our time today. Uh, back to chapter one. Let me just give you a little information about Solomon. Um, Solomon wrote a couple books in the Bible. Of course, there's the Proverbs of Solomon, which deal with love or deal with uh, wisdom. There's the Song of Solomon, which deals with uh, spiritual things and is kind of manifested in a relationship between a uh, man and his wife. When we get to Ecclesiastes, um, it's like a question's being asked. And the question is simply this, is life really worth living uh, for a guy who's homeless um, probably not. I can understand him asking that question. But you, Solomon, with everybody taking care of your needs, everywhere you go, people clamoring for your attention, you just snap your finger or think the thought and somebody comes and does whatever they want for you. For You, you can build anything. You can live anywhere. You have absolutely no worry about anything at all. And you have the audacity to ask that question, is life really worth living? Yeah, that's why God chose Solomon. Because the rest of us who are far less than that materialistically on this earth would say, well, I struggle with things. What could possibly Solomon struggle with things? I mean, he wakes up in the morning, he has breakfast, and by the time uh, lunch rolls around, he's made $10 million. I mean, it just, I can't spend it all. It just keeps accumulating. And my God, why are you doing this? And yet I feel lost on the inside. I feel lonely on the inside. I, I've got all these women surrounded me, a thousand of them that are either wives or concubines, and some of them, you know, most of them probably because of political alliances and stuff of that nature, and there's wealth untold. I've got a, a firms of accountants that are just trying to keep track of everything, and yet I wake up in the morning and I go, is life really worth living. Proverbs and Song of Solomon were probably written when Solomon was doing good spiritually, when he was on top of his game spiritually, when he was a younger man. But Ecclesiastes is written towards the end of his life. And if you remember correctly, towards the end of his life, Solomon struggled. He was married to a lot of women he shouldn't have been married to, violated Deuteronomy 17. He accumulated horses, which he was specifically told not to do, Deuteronomy 17. He accumulated gold and silver and buildings and manservants and uh, women servants and did everything he could to satisfy every whim that he had, exactly the opposite of what God told Israel to do when they had a king, and yet it didn't satisfy. He, uh, he began to sin. He began to struggle. He began to not be what we would call on top of his game or experience this higher Christian life. 
um, it's kind of a it's kind of a sad trek for Solomon. He looks at this and go, everything is worthless. It's vanity. It means nothing. By the way, I'll tell you right now, the word vanity means, and I've looked at about a dozen uh, lexicons and Hebrew dictionaries to kind of get the, just try to find as many words as we can in the English to explain what this phrase means in the Hebrew. But it means emptiness, meaningless, pointless, in vain. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is pointless. All is in vain. It it also means the word breath. But the idea of the word breath is not like a spirit, but breath meaning it's, it's transitory. It's here for a second and it's gone. There's no permanency to the breath. It means fleeting character. It means the attribute of having no significance to anyone at any time for any reason. It means the result of vanity is futility and nothingness. And Solomon says it's grasping for the wind, that I reach out and and grasp for something that I can't grab. And when I do think I've got it, it just slips through my fingers. And this is the richest guy and the wisest guy who ever lived at that time. And yet his life was marked by meaningless. Nothing. Well, wait, wait, wait a second, Solomon. I mean, I mean, you wrote all these Proverbs. I mean, come on, we study the Proverbs to gain wisdom about God. Well, that's, that's not meaningful. That's, that's meaningful. Yeah, but that's, that's when I was younger. That's when I was on fire for the Lord. That's when my life had not been turned away by the toys and trinkets of this world, that I wasn't viewing life as under the sun. You'll see this phrase all through Ecclesiastes. I looked at life up under the sun, and I found out that these things really happened. I thought it would be this way, but no, it's this way. And everything that I'm doing is like meaningless, and it's like grasping for the wind, grabbing for something that was here a moment and gone, that has no lasting value. It's a, um, it's a profound book. So as I'm beginning to, to look at this, I'm, I'm asking the Lord, how do, we, uh, how do we begin to contrast this between what Jesus promised? Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, I tried to get life my way, do it the way I wanted it done, and, and did it according to the logic and the wisdom of the world in which I win, and, and that I lived, and I found that I ended up with nothing, that it was a grasping of the wind, that my life means nothing, everything about me and everything in life is nothing but futility. Jesus promises purpose, The flesh promises nothing. And this is a man who had more fleshly accolades than anybody up until that time or probably even since. How is that possible? You know, as we're looking at this higher Christian life and we're looking at trying to experience God, there's there's two ways to go about this. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the old axiom about ways to be successful. There's two ways to be successful. You find somebody who is successful, who is where you want to be, doing the things that you want to do, living the life that you want to live, and you hook yourself to them and do exactly what they do. And if they're successful and you do what they do, logically it it would be that maybe you'll be successful too. Of course, the pendulum swings over here, and you can also say, I'm going to find someone who is not what I want to be. I want to find a dismal failure. I want to find someone that can't control their attitude or their appetite or, or their emotions, and, and I want to, I, I, that's, that's who I don't want to be. So the best way for me to be successful is to find somebody like that and do the exact opposite. True? So we, we know that in the carnal world. It really also works in the spiritual world. So in the past year, we've been talking about the higher Christian life by pointing ourselves to people who have experienced or are experiencing this intimacy with the Lord that they've never had before. You know, if if we find people like that and we read, I've shared 
um, history with you and writings of other people and examples and stuff of that nature, trying to share even among us people that are beginning to experience more of the higher Christian life, and here's the change that took place in my life. And the problem is, since most of us don't know people like that, since most of us have never experienced God maybe in the way that we want to, since most of us are to that, that's just a goal out there, sometimes that way doesn't work. So what we end up doing is moving it back over here, and we try to find someone who has everything we think would make us happy, but doesn't, and go, Lord, I don't, I don't want to be like that guy. I want, I, want to, I want you to show me how not to fall in that trap of Solomon, and that, in effect, is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Only Solomon is later on in his life when he reads this. So I want you to we'll take just a moment to talk about him. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. I want to show you a few things that are kind of shocking. 1 Kings chapter 11. If you'll notice, it is 43 verses long. But if you'll begin at verse 41 of chapter 11, you see that Solomon is about to die. Chapter 41 of 1 Kings 11. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did and his wisdom, were the night written in the books of the Act of Solomon. And all of a sudden he reigned in Jerusalem with 40 years, rested with his fathers. He died, boom, we're done, it's over. So this is the end of Solomon's life in 1 Kings chapter 11. And we want to understand what kind of man Solomon is since he wrote Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. Song of Solomon Proverbs, the beginning of his life, now he's writing it towards the end of his life. If you'll look at um, chapter 10, for example, it uh, begins with the Queen of Sheba coming and talking about how wise he is and his wisdom surpassed everyone else. By the time we get to verse 14, it talks about how rich he is, how much God has blessed him. As a matter of fact, it's kind of amazing here that other than Revelation, this is the only place in Scripture we find the, the, uh, the number 666. Did y'all know that? Chapter 14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Amazing, isn't it? What if there's a connection? Of course there's a connection, but we're not going to deal with that today. Besides that, the traveling merchants and everybody that gave him all the stuff and how many shields he had and uh, how the chariots and horsemen he had. and He imported horses from Egypt and he violated, all of Israel pretty much violated the rules that God laid out for them if they were going to have an earthly king over them. We find that in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 17. And basically what it says, do not let the king multiply horses, wives, or gold. And that's exactly what we know about Solomon, the stables of Solomon, you know, the, the, uh, the thoroughbred steeds of Solomon, the wives and concubines of Solomon, the riches of Solomon. And so the chapter ends with, of course, it's talking about all the kings from all the countries who are exporting all their gold and giving it to Solomon. He's the greatest man who ever lived. Life is going wonderful. I can't believe God has blessed you this much. Why can't I be Solomon? Until we get to chapter 11, verse 1. Remember, these chapter verses, verse, uh, the chapter divisions and verse divisions aren't here when this is originally written. It's one long narrative on a scroll. And we find this contraction, this contrast word, but. Out of all the blessings, but. Everything good in Solomon's life that we would be jealous of, but. The 200 million followers on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, but. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sididians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, because if you do, being sovereign like I am, I know exactly what's going to happen. Bad company corrupts good character. They are going to turn you away from me. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods." But nevertheless, Solomon clung to these in love. Clung to these in love. 
Verse 1, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women. The word love there in the Hebrew means to delight in, to be enamored by. Again, many of these were political alliances, but nevertheless, God says one thing, Solomon does another. And even when he knew it was wrong, he clung to them in love. He stayed like glue with them. This is the very same word that it talked about in Genesis 2.24. You know, a man and a woman, he shall cleave to his her husband, cleave to the wife, and they shall be one flesh. He was glued to these women. And, verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For so, for it was so when Solomon was old. Think of the mental picture here that you have. Old. Of course he was old. He didn't know what to do. He was feeble, probably had a little touch of dementia. I mean, he's some old, feeble guy with his long beard and his crooked back and used to be a strong man standing up for the Lord, but he's old now. I mean, come on. And since he's old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Well, how old was he? You know how old he was when he died? 60. Do you know how old he was when this chapter was written? 48. All of a sudden, I've got a different picture now. It's not this old, feeble, decrepit guy that is being just manipulated by his aggressive young brides. Instead, we've got a man who knew exactly what he was doing. A man that was probably in the prime of his life. A man that, you know, in, in our world is at the pinnacle of his career. The man was 48 years old, and yet he let his wives turn him away from following the Lord. When he was 60... He actually died. I'm, I'm thinking, wow, that's, you know, I'm 67. I'm seven years older than he was when he died, but I am 21 years older than he was when he allowed this to happen. I mean, how can that be? I mean, you should be smart. You should understand what's going on. You should be wise. But nevertheless, you're 48 years old, and you choose to let your wives just because you've made all these other bad decisions in your life, turn your heart away from the Lord. Matter of fact, the scripture says in verse number four that he was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. You might want to look at First and Second Kings, primarily First Kings, and just circle the times that it highlights David as being the uh, standard here. As his father David. David was better. David did this. I mean, just kind of follow it through. It's, it's pretty amazing. It begins in this chapter 8, verse 16. You can kind of chain them all the way through. But the difference between Solomon and David is David sinned greatly, did he not? Personally, publicly. So did Solomon. But David repented. David changed his life. David suffered the consequences of his sin, but nevertheless, David had a heart for the Lord. You know, you read the Psalm, Psalm 51, where it talks about the fact how he's anguishing over the sin that he did. We never see that in Solomon's life. Never. It's not politically expedient for me to do that. I'm too rich. I have too much stuff. My relationship with Christ, with God, is not all that important. Yes, I've offended him greatly. I'm not loyal to him anymore. Not divided is what the word means, but nevertheless, I'm not repentant either. And you find out that God decides to judge Solomon, judge the nation because of Solomon, What decides to wait until Solomon dies before he does this, not because he's a, he loves Solomon as much, but because of the promise he made to David. David sinned horrifically. Lost a son because of it. Had another son turn on him because of that sin. Lost that one too. Yet he repented. Solomon never did. Why? Don't know. You read Ecclesiastes, you'll get the idea. It's because I have too much to lose. I have too much money. 
too many buildings, too many people looking up to me. I, I can't repent. I can't humble myself like David. I can't, I can't shame myself publicly like that because what's everybody going to think of me? No, I have to keep the facade going thinking my life is okay and my life is meaningless. It's full of emptiness. It's vanity. All is vanity because the blessing of God I had early in my life, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, is now gone. So I'm trying to figure out how to get meaning in my life under the sun, doing it the worldly way, and I realize it's nothing but grasping at the wind. It means nothing. And slowly, as we go through Ecclesiastes, you're going to see Solomon come to a clear understanding of what's important and what's not important, which is a vital message for the church today. Verse 4, so it was when Solomon was old, not even 50, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal, not complete, not safe, not whole, not peaceful, but divided to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So what did you do, Solomon? How bad was it? For Solomon went after Asherath, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, which is another name for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. Moloch was this god where it was this bronze statue and they had hands that were held like this and they would heat it up like a grill and they would come and place young children on it and just relish in the fact that they were fried and burned alive. And Solomon allowed that to happen. Under your watch, a man blessed by God, a man that actually God visited twice. I mean, he had a, a relationship with God early on in his life where they, they would have this conversation, kind of like Justice was talking about, speaking in your ear. The first time, of course, well, it says in verse 9, it says, So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart is turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. First time he appeared to him was in chapter 3, verse 5. Solomon's a young man. He's passionate for the Lord. God, you've given me all of this stuff, and I don't know what to do, and there's so much wisdom out there that I need, and, and tell, me, tell me, how am I supposed to do that? And God says, well, hey, I'll tell you what. Ask me for anything, and I'll give it to you. Okay, okay. Anything, anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And so he said, God, give me wisdom and understanding that I can rule these people, that I can rule it in a way that pleases you. And God said, because you didn't ask for the stuff we would ask for, money and riches and fame and long life, I will grant your request and give you all that stuff too. He built a temple for God. And after his dedication of the temple for God in 1 Samuel chapter 8, all of a sudden chapter 9 rolls around and God speaks to him a second time, only this time it's a warning. Because God obviously saw the direction Solomon was going, and you can read that in, in chapter 9, and it talks about the fact that, that he said, listen, you have done this, and this is great, but if you follow my commandments and do the things I've told you to do, I will bless you like you can't imagine. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, the song you sang today, give it all to you. But if you don't, if you go the way you're going, Here's what's going to happen. And Solomon didn't heed. He went after Moloch and the abomination of the Amorites in verse number five. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Fully follow the Lord. Oh my goodness, what? Then I'm troubled. Um, I can understand Solomon following God and then not following God. I'm hot and now I'm cold. I'm walking in the light. Now I'm walking in the darkness. I love Jesus. I hate Jesus. I can understand the judgment that comes from that. But that's not what this word means. What this word means is here's the standard. Here's who I was. Here's what I wanted in my relationship with him, and I have backed off into lukewarmness. It's not I have backed off into apostasy, but I no longer fully follow the Lord as his father David did. Well, David sinned, and I sinned, and you sinned, and Solomon sinned. David repented. 
Uh, we kind of repent and, you know, we just don't want the consequences of our sins. David changed his life. Oh, that's where it gets difficult. I, I don't want to change my life. I don't want to surrender things to him. I, I want to kind of hold on to it myself. Fully follow the Lord. As we go through Ecclesiastes, you're going to see that what Solomon is trying to do is justify his sin, his lukewarmness. You know, I, I love you, Jesus, but not that much. You know, I know that you require these things of me, but I don't want to give that to you. You know, I want to, I want to give it to me. I know that, that I should be first, you should be first in everything in my life, but you're not. You get the leftovers of what I have, and, and Solomon tries to justify all that. You know, I had to marry these women. I had to get all this kind of stuff because I'm running a, a, a massive administration here of people I can't really trust, and the nation depends on me, and I got to do what I got to do, and God says no, and you can go through Ecclesiastes and see Solomon begin to realize everything I'm doing by the world standard is just grasping for wind. It means nothing except following him and his commandments and obeying him. If you really unpack that verse using, for example, the Revelation chapter 3 passage or the John 1 passage about God is light and there's, in, there's no darkness at all, we justify our lukewarmness by thinking lukewarmness is okay. You know, God, you're, you're okay with that. I mean, uh, I'm not where I should be, but I'm not where I used to be. I'm kind of here, but I'm okay with that. And so, God, you need to be okay with that. Revelation chapter 3 says it makes the Lord sick to the point he wants to vomit us out of his mouth. Here, God judges Solomon for not being fully committed to me, but instead being haphazard, lazy, lukewarm. There's a principle here that is scary for people like us who like to live in the gray areas rather than embrace the light. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow fully the Lord as did his father David. So what did you do, Solomon, at 48 years old or actually prior to that? I built a high place, an altar, for Kamash, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. It's still there today, the remnants of that. On the hill that is east of Jerusalem. Do you know what the hill is that is east of Jerusalem? It is the Mount of Olives. Solomon on the Mount of Olives built an altar to Kamash, the abomination, I mean, that's how God viewed of, the, of Moab on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of Ammon. Wow. Why would you do that, Solomon? Did you go out there and worship like that? Probably not. You just, oh, you know, it's fine. I don't want to deal with it. You know, I don't want to hear you guys complaining all the time. You're in my house. I have my responsibility. I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel, blessed by God immensely. I'm obviously the spiritual leader of my house, but I'm too busy doing stuff that I want to do, or I don't care about it so much that I'm allowing this thing to creep in, and it's going to wreck, uh, wreak untold calamity on my life, and on the nation's life because of my lukewarmness. And, verse 8, he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incest and sacrificed to their God. Every Hey, listen, can I go out there and... Uh, uh, take some of your money and buy an abortion clinic? Yeah, sure, that's fine. Hey, can I go out there and invest in a um, in Pornhub? Yeah, sure, that's fine. Can I do all of these terrible things that they're antithesis of the God who's spoken to you twice, who's blessed you immensely, whom you're supposed to have wisdom from, but now that you're 48 years old in the height of your management career, now don't care about the spiritual stuff because you're too busy administrating the nation? Can I do this? Sure, I don't care. But God did. Verse 9, so the Lord became angry. It's a great word, great word. It means enraged, but literally it means this. 
It means to breathe hard through the nostril. Can you feel it? Solomon? (laughs) He became enraged to breathe through the nose with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to you twice. I mean, I appeared to you. Many people don't get me appearing to them at all. Moses never even got the chance to see my face. I had to hide him in the cleft of the rock. But I came to you not once, but twice. Twice. And this is how you treat me? And this is before the Holy Spirit, like we have, lives with us. I mean, the fact is, this must have been a monumental time for Solomon versus, you know, sometimes the interaction we have with the Holy Spirit since he dwells with us. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Everything I've shown you, everything I promised you was nothing to you compared to what you wanted to do and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. He's 48 years old. I gave you a simple command. Don't go after other gods, and that's the one thing that you did. I've revealed myself to you and shown you how intimate our relationship would be like it was with David, who's an example of how you should be, and yet you refused it all because money and prestige and popularity and pleasing other people were more important. Therefore, I have a message for you, Solomon, verse 11. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, you, it's personal. I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, not because of you, but because of David, I will, uh, I will not do it while you're still alive. Nevertheless, I will do it. I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of, your, of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Follow it through, my servant David, David who followed me with his whole heart, David who sinned immensely but repented and changed versus many of us today who sin immensely, justify it, and rock on like it's nothing. Like it's nothing. Let me take you back to Ecclesiastes, and I'll bring this to a close today. This was Solomon's plight in life when he wrote this book. Questions. I don't understand I don't, I don't understand why all this is happening. I don't understand the, the purpose of all of this. What is the purpose of life? I thought it was serving you, God, but I haven't felt you or heard from you and who knows how long, so therefore I'm working really hard just to keep my kingdom together, not realizing that it means nothing without you in the center of it. Nothing. The word of the preacher, verse 1. He lists list himself that three times in this book. Uh, chapter 7, verse 27, and towards the end of the book, it simply means a collector of wisdom who, uh, who then proclaims that wisdom, talking about who he was at one particular point in time. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So uh, what do you want to talk about, Solomon? What's going on in your life? Oh, oh it's terrible. It's terrible. I, um, I was looking at some of the commentaries and one of the commentaries said that they, as G. Campbell Morgan quoted um, a Jewish rabbi who said that Solomon's view of life was a, what do you say? It was a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of the blister. That's how Solomon was viewing life as having everything because there was nothing inside that gave any of it meaning. Solomon, tell me about life. Tell me what you know. It's, it's meaningless. It's pointless. It means not, what do you mean it's meaningless or pointless? Every possible whim, every bit of pleasure, everything that makes you happy is at your fingertips. We're toiling to supply and support your lifestyle, and you're telling us it's nothing? 
It's vanity of vanities. It's meaningless of meaningless, says the preacher. All is vanity. Everything is empty, meaningful, pointless. It's transitory. It's like breath. It's here for a moment. It's like grasping of the wind. It's, it's a result of my entire life being futile, full of nothingness. It means nothing. I wake up in the morning, and the only God in my life is me and what I can do to make me feel better, and it is ridiculously empty. Let me ask you a question, and I'll just stop with this. Verse 3, what profit or what advantage has a man from all his labor in which he toils on this earth under the sun from a human perspective? I mean, we work constantly. We work to better our lives. We work to make things for ourselves. We work to build bigger homes and have bigger retirement accounts and, and you know, have the corner office or, or be able to you know, sell our business on the stock market and retire rich. I mean, we work hard. We spend most of our time toiling and, and laboring and working. And why do we do that? I mean, what's the point of that in the great scheme of things? Answer, verse 4. I mean, one generation passes away and another generation comes. I mean, you can't take any of it with you. It's like we're on this treadmill, like this rat in a cage, and we're running and we're not going anywhere. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth lasts forever. I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like this cycle of life. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. So what? I can't control that. It just happens. It's controlled by a force bigger than me. The wind goes to the south and turns to the north. The wind whirls continuously, and it comes again on its own circuit. I mean, I don't control any of that. I mean, things much bigger than I am are overwhelming. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full, to the place in which the rivers come, and they return again. All things that are full of labor, men cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. I'm tired, and I'm weary, and all the stuff I'm accumulating, and all the stuff I've got, they don't satisfy me because once I've got them, I realize now I'm just afraid I'm going to lose them, and I can't take any of them with me. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that can excite me. There's nothing that can wow me because it's just the same stuff over and over again when I live with my eyes focused under the sun on this earth. Wake up, do the same thing, go to bed until I die. And then what happens? Everything I accumulate goes to somebody else who didn't earn it. Question, verse 10. Is there anything of which... It maybe says, hey, this is new. This is exciting. This gives your life purpose. This is incredible, like it was when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Answer, from his perspective. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come but those who will, by those who will come after. It's, I was here for a moment, and then I'm gone, and everybody forgets, and nobody cares. Wow. Kind of makes it difficult to get up in the morning, doesn't it, Solomon? But Solomon, you're not somebody who works at Wix. You're not somebody who, who works at Walmart or Home Depot. You're somebody who owns major conglomerates. You're the somebody who can do anything he wants, go anywhere, You'd get excited about anything this world has to offer. And having experienced all of that, which he does in Ecclesiastes, life is still meaningless. It means nothing without a purpose for getting up. And that purpose must be greater than my own selfish greed. Can you see how incredible this book is going to be for our culture today? This is Solomon. And he forgets what Paul said in um, 1, Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, talking about labor and working and what really matters. So I'm going to close with this. If you'll read 1 Corinthians 15, it has to do with death 
It has to do with the end of our life. You know, death was your sting and all that kind of stuff. And I look at our life and we're getting ready to end our life and how we lived our life and the things we've done really matter. And here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not like Solomon, who was working for himself, but for the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not for self, but in the Lord. Solomon made all the decisions that he needed to make in order to keep his wealth going, keep the nation rolling, a nation that was given to him as a gift, a nation that he didn't put together, he didn't sustain, a nation that he didn't defeat the enemies God did. And yet it was given to him to be a caretaker, to follow God's rule, and God promised to bless him immensely and did bless him immensely. Wisest man who ever lived. And yet he threw it all away because he got his eyes off the source and put his eyes on the toys. And we as a culture and we as a church need to make sure we don't do the same thing. In essence, like the higher Christian life, what Solomon would say is life is not meaningless. Life is not in vain if it's lived for Christ and not self. Because all Solomon did is live for self and had all the means to do it. And whereas we would say, wow, you know, to be able to go to every Hollywood premiere and have front row seats, box seats, whatever it was, anything you want, fly any jet that you want. We're going to, you know, Karen, are you hungry today? You want some Chinese food? Or how about some uh, French food? We'll fly to, fly to Paris, you know, and, at a restaurant. It would be incredible life. But it meant nothing if Christ is not in the center of it all. It's back to that higher Christian life. So let me encourage you this week, read, um, read Ecclesiastes. It's only 12 chapters. Uh, try to, to, to pick out among yourself the themes that are flowing through here. You'll get a, a gist of Solomon's despair and his depression, realizing that he sacrificed his life for nothing. And then you can see towards the end of that, God beginning to speak and him beginning to realize the mistakes that he's made. And um, I think it'll be a real blessing to us as we go through it. Amen? Let me pray.